Hey, it's a joy and an honor for me to be here. The city that I'm from is called Herzog and Aurach, and I have no idea why you consider that difficult to say. <laughs> Herzog and Aurach. Herzog and Aurach is a, a small city in uh, Bavaria, southern Germany, and our claim to fame is that Puma and Adidas were started there and still have the international headquarters there. And if you don't know the story of Puma and Adidas, it is very interesting. Um, those were two brothers that just started fighting. They both had a shoe company together, and then they went off and founded their own companies. And Herzog and Aurach is a very interesting city because of it, because the city was literally split in the middle. There's a river that goes through the city, and all the Adidas people would live on the one side and go to restaurants on the one side and play soccer on the one side, and all the Puma people were on the other side. Um, thankfully, the city has come together now, and there's peace between the companies, even though they're still competitors. Um, but I get to play for the Adidas soccer team, which is a lot of fun, and um, we get to do ministry there. So that's our situation. That's Herzog and Aurach. And we're here in England right now for vacation, just a, a week. And I told James that we were going to come, and James invited me to come here, and we kind of planned our vacation around this because um, I'm so excited that I can be here with you today and open up God's Word. James then sent me a passage that I get to teach on, and um, the excitement lessened a little bit. Um, I, it, it did not, but I, read, I went to the first commentary, I studied through the passage, and uh, as a German, you go to Luther first, of course, and you see what Luther had to say about this passage, and here's what Luther says. He says, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain what Peter means. <laughs> so thank you very much, James, for the invitation, and thanks for giving me this passage. I'm excited to open it, and um, I would like to pray with us, um, asking God just one more time to really help us understand uh, this difficult passage. So let's pray one more time. Jesus, we are thankful for your word. It is a privilege that you have spoken to us through the apostles. And we pray that by your spirit you would open up today this passage to us and that we could understand it and that it would deeply encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I remember when I was sitting on the bus from Cape Ray to Lancaster. Lancaster, wow. And uh, I was looking out of the window um, in my hand holding a little flashcard. That night we were having a test at Cape and Ray and we had to memorize 20 Bible verses. Memorization is not my strong suit, especially not in English. Um, but I was sitting there with this little flashcard and it was one of the first verses that I ever learned by heart in my life. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to have an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to have an answer for everyone who asks you. Isn't that an amazing verse? It's a challenging verse. When I first memorized this verse and I learned about it, it really challenged me and it excited me. 
And I went back and I tried to study as much as I can and I tried to read as much as I can and I started paying attention to the lectures in Cape and Ray. Why? Because I wanted to have an answer for everybody who asks. And I went out and I tried to talk to people and I tried to tell people about Jesus and people would, would have questions and I would have answers because after three months Bible school, you know everything there is, at least you think. And I try to have an answer for everybody who asks all the time. In the beginning, this verse encouraged me in an incredible way to go out and proclaim the gospel and to learn about Jesus. But the more often I actually went out and tried to proclaim Jesus and have an answer for everybody, the more often I realized I don't. Maybe you feel this way too sometimes. You don't have an answer to every question that people ask, and it can be very discouraging. Honestly, to me, this verse has become somewhat of a roadblock in my life. I feel like I want to go and I want to proclaim, but I'm so scared that I do not have all the answers, so I'd rather not. And you know what? It's especially in times of suffering and hardship, Sometimes I sit at a coffee shop on the Puma campus and we are going through difficult times at the moment. And I sit there and I have this desire to tell people about Jesus and I feel like there's this pressure of me, I'm the pastor and I need to go and talk to all those Puma employees and I, and I feel like I can't because I don't have the answers to all of their questions. And this verse has become a verse that really holds me back, especially in times of suffering, especially when I'm tired and weary and when other things are on my mind. We are called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And I know that in many churches and many Christians have that same roadblock in their lives that I have. We aren't witnesses. We struggle to do that. And one of the reasons is because we do not have all the answers. This text is very interesting. Um, the verse will come a few verses down. Always be prepared to have an answer. But in order to understand a verse, we always, always, always have to read it in context. And as James gave me this passage and I was finally able to really study the verse that I had memorized in context, it came to life for me. It became a new meaning and a new depth. And I hope and pray that the same would happen to you as we read this together. So let's look at what the text says. If you want to take the Bibles in the pure, if your own Bible, you can read with me in 1 Peter 3 and starting in verse 13. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. I know that you have done studies through 1 Peter up till this point, and you have learned that 1 Peter was written to a church that was in turmoil, a church that was struggling, and a church that was suffering. And it's in that context that also this passage is, of course, written into. So Peter writes here in verse 13, Who is going to harm you? If you are eager to do good. Isn't that an amazing verse? Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? It seems like Peter is giving us a solution for suffering here. Isn't it? You, you, you're suffering, you may be suffering, but who's going to harm you if you do good? Do more good and there will be less suffering, it sounds like he's saying. 
a solution for suffering, possibly. But let's continue reading verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Dang it. Not a solution for suffering at all. But even if you do right, there may be suffering in your life. That's what he's saying. So initially, it seemed like he's saying, hey, here's your way to avoid suffering. But now he's saying, uh, actually, you may avoid suffering sometimes if you do good, but you cannot choose to always avoid suffering. Suffering will just show up in your life like a thief robbing you of all the joy and stability. The choice is not will you suffer or will you not suffer. But there is another choice that we're given in the passage. And it continues in verse 14. It says, do not fear their threats Do not be frightened, verse 15, but in your heart revere Christ as Lord, or in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. This is a quote of the book of Isaiah. Peter goes back here and he quotes Isaiah 8, verse 12 and 13. Isaiah 8, verse 12 and 13 was written in a time when uh, um, Israel was going down to Judah. Israel and Judah were separated. There were two different nations at that time. And Israel was about to enter Judah and take their king away. And Judah just sat there waiting for the suffering, waiting for the turmoil and for them to fall into their country. And the prophet Isaiah spoke to them, or God through Isaiah spoke to them. And he said, do not be afraid. But in your heart, set apart, and it does not say Christ as Lord in the passage of Isaiah. Fascinatingly, it says, but in your heart, set apart Yahweh. In your heart, set apart the Lord, God, Yahweh. Fascinating what Peter does here. He takes that same verse and he quotes it almost word for word except for that one time where he replaces the word Yahweh with the word Christ who is Lord. I love that because I feel like it really shows you who Peter thought Jesus was. He wasn't just an ordinary being. No, you could literally interchange the name Yahweh with the name Jesus But in your heart, set apart, Christ as Lord. That's what we can say in the New Testament. But what does that, what does that mean? In your heart, revere Christ as Lord. The word that's used here in the original language is the word hagiazzo. It's usually used to say somebody is holy. So you are hagiazzo, you are holy. So we could translate this with, but in your heart, Make holy Christ as Lord, but that really doesn't make a lot of sense, it seems. Hagiazzo. What does it, what, it's difficult to understand. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine you are standing in your kitchen at night and you're cutting potato salad. I have this illustration from Stuart Briscoe in America. He's telling this and it's so memorable that I feel like I have to retell it. Imagine you're in your house and you're cutting up potato salad and you have your knife in your hand and you're cutting the potatoes and you're going ding, 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 ding. We're making German potato salad, by the way, because it's, 
it's the best one. Um, so we're cutting our potatoes and you go ding, 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 ding. And you take the next potato and you cut it and you go ding, 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 ding. And you take the next potato and you cut it, ding, ding, ding. And suddenly the phone rings and you cut it and flop and your finger is off. And you look up startled. And in shock, you walk over to the phone and pick it up. And it's your wife on the phone. And she says, dear, um, I'm coming home with a few colleagues. I will be at home in 10 minutes. Could you have dinner ready for us? Maybe you could stretch it a little bit so we would have enough for everybody. Okay, thank you. We will be home soon. And you go back and stand in front of the potato salad. And you go, how am I going to make this work? And stretch the potato salad for everybody. And you look down and you see your finger. Your finger at that point is holy. It's hagiatso, it's set apart, it's cut off. Hagiatso has the same root than the word to cut. So your finger is holy in that instant, it's cut off, it's set apart. And to be holy or to make Christ holy, as it says here, means exactly that. In your hearts, set apart. Set apart Christ as Lord. In the Old Testament, there was the temple. And in the temple, there were many animal sacrifices being made. And those animal sacrifices were being made with special tools that were holy that was set apart just for a special use in the temple. So you couldn't use the same bowl that you bought at Ikea to catch the blood of the lambs. There was a special holy set-apart bowl. It was set apart for a certain purpose. It has a special role and a distinct place in the life of the Israelites. And I think that's exactly what it's saying here, but in your hearts, set-apart Give Christ a special role and a special place in your life, especially in times of suffering. If I were to peek, I think this is asking, if I were to peek behind the curtain of your soul, like the high priest peeked behind the curtain of the holies of holies, what would be on the throne? What would, would be the most prominent play, in the most prominent place behind the curtain of your soul? And the choice is here, do not be afraid. Let it not be fear. Let not be fear on that throne, but let it be Jesus. Do not be afraid, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Give him that special place in your life. Give him that special role. And then the text continues. And it feels a little disjointed what's happening now in the text, but I don't think it's disjointed at all because something happens when we set apart Christ as Lord in our life. Something happens. Verse 15, then it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks him. To everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Here it is. Here's the verse, first verse that I ever memorized. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks but do you know what it doesn't say? 
Always be prepared to have an answer to everyone for every question. Always be prepared to have an answer for every single question that's out there. If somebody asks you about science, know an answer. If somebody asks you about psychology, know an That's not what it says. It says always be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks you to give a reason for what? The hope that you have. The hope that you have. So I think this text is showing us here that we should set apart Christ as Lord, give Him that prominent place in our life. Don't trust fear more than we trust Christ. And people will ask us because they will say that they will see that hope in our lives. What will be the result of this, and how shall we speak? Continue in verse 15. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The way we shall speak is clear here. Gentleness and respect. And the result is what I find fascinating. It says, and they will be ashamed of their slander. When, in what circumstances are you ashamed? It's when you realize that the person, and I think this is what the context is saying, when you realize that the person who you're persecuting may actually be right because you've seen his hope, you've seen her hope. There will be a transformation. People will realize and people will understand. I think this is what verse 16 is saying. But the question for me remains, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope that you have. What is this kind of hope? You see, I think in Christianity, we spend a lot of time in America, and I think, especially there, we think in order to be witnesses, in order to be asked about your faith, you always need to be smiley and happy. And if you have problems, you kind of need to push them to the side and suppress them. And if you're just always smiley and happy, people will ask you while you're smiley and happy and you can invite them to the faith. Is this hope? Is this true biblical hope? I think we oftentimes think so. And when we're not smiley and happy, we feel like we're not hopeful enough. We're just staying with family, and that's exactly the accusation I made for myself. We're staying with a family who aren't Christian, they're Muslim, in fact. I love them, they're great people. And I was just thinking, you know what, I want them to see my hope, I want them to see my hope. And I, I sat there, and I was just tired, and then I felt like, no, I need to look happy, because otherwise they're not going to ask me. Isn't that what we oftentimes think? I don't think that's the hope that Peter is talking about, but what is the hope that he's talking about? My wife's parents have a little dog. So what we're doing now, we are looking at a few more verses, and now the verses start to get obscure, okay? This is what Luther was talking about. And in order to fully understand them, I want to give you an illustration that illustrates um, what's happening three times. So he's saying the same thing three times with different illustrations about suffering and about hope. And in order to illustrate this, I want to show you a picture of, um, of my wife, parents' dog, Right here. His name is Brody, and he is super, super cute. 
Okay, Brody loves to snuggle, Brody loves to be around people. He always gets very excited when we come home and visit them, and he always gets depressed for days when we leave again. As soon as we start packing our suitcase, Brody starts to be depressed. He just knows. Um, cutest little dog, loves to snuggle and loves to hang out. But with dogs, there's a problem with many dogs. After a while... If you don't take care of dogs, dogs start to stink, right? Who of you has a dog? Can I see them real quick? Does anybody? They start to smell bad, right? So you have to wash them. And if they smell bad, nobody wants to hang out with the dog. And I mean, you do, but you don't really, you know. You, you want them to be close and there, but there's just a little bit of a distance. And there's definitely less snuggles going on if the dog smells. Brody knows some words. He, uh, um, we train him, so he knows the word cheese, for example. Brody loves cheese. So whenever we say cheese or peanut butter or something of the like, Brody gets super excited and the tail starts uh, to wiggle and he comes and jumps up and down. There's also one very negative word that he knows. When Brody starts smelling, he needs to take a bath. And Brody knows the word bath. As soon as a person in the family goes, hey Brody, let's take a bath, you will see Brody something like this. I don't know if you can see it. He's hiding under um, a little shelf over there. Brody hates baths. He actually literally physically starts shaking on his whole body when we just say the word bath. It's fun. When I first came uh, to their house, um, we did this just occasionally. I'm, they were like, hey, look what we can do. Brody bath. And he starts shaking and we'd all laugh and we do it again two, two hours later. Um, this is Brody and Brody hates baths, but Brody just has to take baths every once in a while, okay? The baths are very important to him because even though, even though he doesn't like them, they're important because the baths enable him to get snuggles afterwards again. It's through the waters of suffering, through the bath that he has to take, that he can enjoy the true life of snuggles again. So it's through suffering, through the waters of suffering, that true life is happening through the waters of suffering, true life is happening. This same principle we will see um, three times now in our text, and we will continue to read in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Very interesting verse theologically. First of all, it says here, for Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That same word constellation is used very often in the New Testament, but one word is different. Whenever this is used, it says, for Christ also died once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. For Christ also died, he died, he died. But here it says, for Christ also suffered. Once for sin. This made many problems for people that were um, copying manuscript in the ancient days. You know that 
the Bible that we have today is made out of many manuscripts from the letters that the apostles wrote. And sometimes, apost sometimes people who would um, copy those manuscripts, they would edit a little bit. They would think, oh, there's a wrong word right here, or there's something missing right there, so we need to insert it, or we need to change the word. And that's actually what happened here. A lot of people went to this verse, and they said, no, suffered? That, that can't be right. It has to say died, because it says died in this context everywhere else. But I think suffered... Suffered, for one, is in the oldest texts that we have, so it is a right reading. And I think what Peter is doing here is very intentional. He's saying, you know what, I know that you are going through suffering. And he wants to identify your suffering with Christ's suffering. And that's why he said, for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ suffered for sin, so the suffering of Christ that he endured on the cross, what did it do? It brought new life, eventually, because Christ, Christ suffered for your and for my sins, and he resurrected so that you and I can have a life. And the interesting thing here, the way Peter is putting it, is not we are saved even though Christ suffered, or Christ may have suffered and it was part of it, but if he could have avoided No, it says it's through the suffering. The suffering was necessary to redeem for the sins. So the suffering was the predecessor to new life. Suffering is the predecessor to new life. We see that in Christ. We have life because he suffered. Then there's a second illustration, and now it gets very obscure. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. We're not sure who the imprisoned spirits are, because now it talks about Noah in just a second. Um, there's four possible ways, four things that this could mean. It could mean that Christ preached through Noah or that he preached to the people of Noah's time. It could mean that Christ preached through the, to the angels that um, fell in Noah's time. We don't, we don't know what it means. Let me read this again, verse 19. But being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. While we're not sure what the first part of this verse means, I find the second totally fascinating. Let me read it again. In it, in it so the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. What was happening in the days of Noah? The days of Noah, people were very corrupt and God decided to bring an end to the corruption and he saved eight people through the ark. It says here, it doesn't say they were saved through the ark though, it says they were saved through the water. Why were they saved through the water? How can Peter say something like that? Well, I think, and this is very difficult, but I think there was suffering that was happening, there was death that was happening in that time. Why? So that there could be new life at the other side of that death and suffering. The flood was a new beginning for humanity. 
It was a new beginning for those eight people whom we all are related to, yeah? So our forefathers and foremothers, if that's a word, it was a new beginning for them. And that new beginning came through the suffering of the water. So it's suffering that produces a new life and a new beginning. And I know we need to be very careful with this. And the flood was an event that only happened once and it will never happen again. And God sent us a rainbow to show that it will never happen again. But it shows us here too that it is through suffering there's life. And then there's a the last example of this, and it says, it, go, it continues in verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at, the, at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers in submission to him. It's also a very controversial verse because it says the waters, the baptism that saved you. We don't believe that, do we? We don't believe that the act of baptizing somebody saves a person. We more so believe that the act of um, baptism is a symbol for what happens in your heart when you get saved and what happens in your heart when you get saved. You say, I'm giving up of myself. I'm dying to myself so that I can live in Christ. Like Galatians 2.20 says, For I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here too, I think we have an example of suffering and death that stands at the beginning. We as humans, we die to ourselves, we die to our own life. There's a death that happens in baptism. But on the other side of this suffering and death is life. Symbolically, when we are put down in the baptism, we die. And symbolically, we rise again as we come up out of the water. So there again, death and suffering is the predecessor for the new life. Death and suffering is the predecessor for new life. We saw this in three examples. Christ died and suffered, and out of this came new life. People in Noah's times died and suffered, and out of this came new life and a new world. And we die to ourselves, and out of this comes a new life that Jesus gives to us and that he grants us. So we asked, what is the hope of suffer? What, what, what is the hope that we have? The hope that we can show? And I think it's simple. The hope that this text shows us we can have is that suffering is not the last word. When you and I go through suffering, no matter how difficult and how long it is, it is not the last word that's spoken. But oftentimes, Suffering is the predecessor to life. And that's the hope that we have because we're in Christ Jesus. We can hope that suffering is the predecessor to life. And one day we are all going to die in this world. And we know that this death and this suffering will be the predecessor to our new life. I believe it can happen today in our lives too. 
You know, people say the most transformative times in their lives were when they suffered. And they came out of their suffering a new person because they've learned so many things about themselves and about Jesus. Death and suffering is oftentimes the predecessor for new life. And that's why we have hope because suffering doesn't have the last word. We can have true hope and that's amazing. And I think this hope, such a hope, is only find in, found in Jesus. Okay, so, and it's this hope that when you live in this hope and in this certainty that suffering doesn't speak the last word, but that Jesus does, then people will ask you about this hope. And that's what you can proclaim. Why are you hopeful? <laughs> Because suffering doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the last word. Jesus has the last word. If you are inspired by this hope, you will be inquired about this hope. If you are inspired by this hope, you will be inquired about this hope. I know it's a little clumsy, but it rhymes, so I like it. <laughs> if you're inspired by hope, if you're experiencing this hope day in and day out, I believe people will see it. And this hope doesn't always mean being smiley and being happy. But there's something deep and fundamental that goes on in the depths of our heart when we believe suffering doesn't speak the last word, but Christ does. So interestingly enough, this verse, this passage, as I study it again, doesn't tell me, Tim, go and learn as many things as you can so that you have an answer to everything. But this passage encourages me, go And feel the embrace of your loving Savior. Feel the embrace and gain the confidence that suffering and death doesn't have the last word. But that he's there for you and he will carry you through it. And you can experience his life in it and after it. When I was in Cape Ray and I started to proclaim, I started to do evangelism and I started to tell other people about Jesus, I, I always did it in the same way. I always tried to be very um, like classical apologetics. I tried to argue, here's the reason why we can believe in God and here are the five arguments for the existence of a higher being. And then I went to why this higher being had to be a personal God. And then I went to why we believe in Jesus and then why. And that's always the way I did it. And I, I don't think that's always a bad idea. I think that's, that's a great idea, in fact oftentimes, um, but just recently I reflected back on how I came to believe in Jesus and I came to follow Jesus. And you know, for me, that was actually in Cape and Ray where that happened. I went to Cape and Ray very bitter and frustrated. And in Cape and Ray, I gave my life to Jesus. And I asked myself, why, why did I do that at that time? You know, there was nobody at Cape Ray that sat down with me that told me, Tim, here are the five arguments for the existence of a higher being. And here's the reason. Nobody did that. Nobody did that. But there was one person who was very formative in my life at that point, and his name was Scott. He was with me at Bible school. He was, he was my roommate. And we spent some time together, and we had some talks And Scott was very, very fascinating to me. He would say things, and I, 
I remember this as one night he went to bed and he, he had tears in his eyes and um, was almost crying and just kind of wound up and still peaceful. And he told me this one sentence. He said, Tim, I cannot wait to get up tomorrow morning and pray for my friend who's struggling so hard in his life right now. You know what? Scott told me that and it shook me up. Because there's a guy who has a friend who goes through serious turmoil. He himself goes through some turmoil. But I just perceive this hope in him. And I realized I want that too. You know, this it's not like he's a smiley guy or anything, but he just had this peace and hope that I could see. And that was what drew me ultimately to Jesus, our Savior. You know, and I think that's the true way of evangelism. It's to live in the hope in Jesus Christ, to always feel his embrace, to feel his grace, to see what he's doing in you and through you, and other people will see that as well. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the words that you spoke to us through Peter. Thank you for the encouragement that we don't need to know everything and always have an answer for everything, but that we just have to have an answer for our hope. And our hope can become so apparent to other people that they will ask us about it. Jesus, thank you that this is not an act if you have to. It's more like a passive you get to answer because people ask you. Lord Jesus, and I pray that everybody here in this room would be able to experience hope in you. There's people in here today that go through a time of suffering. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would encourage them and that you would show them that suffering has not the last word. Death has not the last word, but you have and life has. So Jesus, encourage us in this and let us experience your embrace. Amen.